can be seated. I do want to uh, echo words of congratulations to Hayden and Macy. We're excited about you guys and what God has in store for you, and we do celebrate, yeah, with you. We'll go ahead and do that. Let's give them another round of applause. I also want to thank you for something you didn't even know you did. Um, this year was the first year we do a minister's retreat every September right after Labor's, Labor Day camp. And this is the first year we had a speaker come in. Those of you who were here last Sunday, uh, Bruce Gooden was here. Um, and so there were a little more financial resources required to make the retreat happen this year. And the congregation and Billings helped uh, to fund that retreat. And what I want you to know about that retreat is it seems like almost every year there's someone who says, I'm not going to do another year of ministry. And through that retreat, by the end, people are, are realigned to their calling and to their goal. And so I just want to thank this congregation for being a part of a ministry that extends beyond this congregation, has an impact on the state, and has an impact, we hope, Lord willing, across uh, the United States and the world. And so just thank you again. Everything that you put in the contribution is used for all sorts of wonderful things, and that's just a taste and a reflection of, of one of the things that some of those funds are, are used for. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 4 this morning, and so you can be opening your Bible there. So Tennessee Williams wrote a play that became very, very successful, The Glass Menagerie. And at the end, after three years reflecting on it, so this is a play that he, he, he was acclaimed, uh, got a lot of fame, uh, had, had a lot of attention, a, a lot of money that came a part of it. And so three years later, as he's reflecting on uh, that success, what do you imagine he's thinking about? What do you imagine he's uh, reflecting on? Well, he sat down three years uh, from that time and he wrote an article called The Catastrophe of Success. And of one of the many things that he said about success was how, mo how much more complicated his relationships had been. He said he couldn't tell from his friends whether they were offering kind compliments or just silly flattery trying to get on his good side. He wrote, Sincerity and kindness seem to have gone out of all my friends' voices, and I always suspected them of hypocrisy. I mean, what would it be like to not know if people really genuinely cared about you? I think it wouldn't take us very long to realize that, that as we have relationships with people, that there is a difference between authentic relationships, where people are in that relationship because they legitimately care for us, they legitimately love us, and artificial relationships where somebody says, I want to get something from this person, so I'm going to befriend them in order to get the things that I want. There's a, a story from Clara Loffa, who was a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camp. She developed such a painful toothache that she wasn't able to work, and so they took her to the dentist. As her SS officer went to the dentist, he instructed the dentist, only do the work that is necessary to allow her to get back to work, and do not waste any painkillers on her. Well, the dentist of the occasion said he would not do any work until the SS officer left the room. And so he leaves the room and he begins doing an examination of her mouth and he notices that she's crying and he realizes that he hasn't even started anything painful and says, I'm sorry, am I hurting you? And she said, no, the tears are because it has been a long time since I was treated like a human being. We know the difference 
between an authentic relationship where someone genuinely cares about us. And we also know when people are using us in authentic relationships. It's artificial because they just want something from us. In our text this morning, what we're going to do is to explore faith and signs and how those things relate in our relationship with Jesus. And I think that we will find that sometimes we can have an artificial relationship with Jesus. And sometimes we can have an authentic relationship with Jesus. And of course, John is calling us into an authentic relationship with Jesus. So we begin um, back in John chapter 4, verse 43. It says, when two days were over, he went from that place to Galilee. So if we remember the movement there, Jesus had been in Samaria. They invited him to stay and to teach with him. And for those two days, he had been teaching in Samaria. And many believed because of his words. And at the end, their conclusion was that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so now we're told that Jesus leaves Samaria, and he now has entered back into Galilee. And John, almost as a side, whispers to us and reminds us, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in the prophet's own country. John's setting expectations. Jesus is getting home. This is, this is his neck of the woods. These are his people. And John's letting us know, sometimes when Jesus is amongst his own people, he's not given an honorable welcome. Which is ironic because if you look at the very next verse, it says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. And it almost looks like there's two pieces of a puzzle that don't fit together. John says, a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown, and he went home and they welcomed him. And I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, why did they welcome him? John uses this word only one time in his gospel, so it's hard to know what John is getting at. But I think all of us know the difference between an authentic welcome and an inauthentic welcome. Have you ever been invited somewhere and you realize something else is going on other than relationship building? I was talking to somebody who recently, she moved to a new town. And so how's the transition going? She said, well, the other day, uh, a friend I knew previously invited me out to lunch. And I thought, this is great. I'm in a new place, going to start building relationships. And when the friend showed up, she showed up with three or four for other friends. And pretty quickly into lunch, she realized that the organization these friends represented were doing a sales pitch for her. And I said, man, how did that feel? And she said, I felt kind of used. You can be welcomed and invited, but you're welcomed invited because there's another agenda. There's something else at work. And you'll notice in this text that that's a part of what John shares with us, that they welcomed him since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. So these are people who realize Jesus is a man who can do miracles. Jesus is a man who can do wonderful things. And so they welcome him, not because he's Jesus, but because of his ability and potential to perform signs and miracles. In fact, John puts him very much in the same kind of category as Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, it says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. The signs of Jesus can present curiosity to people. And people can approach Jesus, but they may approach him with different agendas, with different purposes and different intentions. In fact, I, and, and we've, I've thought about covering this at different points. I thought, we'll do this today. One of the things that's important as we study through John is we have to understand how John uses signs 
because he uses them very, in a very unique way. And here's kind of three summary statements about what we will recognize when John uses references to the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. One is John will talk about signs as having some potential to plant seeds that can bear authentic fruit. John says signs can do that. John also will tell us that signs are limited. Signs are not such that if somebody sees a sign, they're going to be forced into faith of Jesus. There are some limits to signs. But John will also in his gospel let us know there are some dangers in becoming too attached to the signs of Jesus. So we're going to look at just a couple of examples of each of these to make sure we understand both the potential, the limits, and the dangers of signs. So for potential. Remember why John told us he's writing these book, this letter? He, he says, Jesus did many other signs. And he's going to tell us, why did he write the signs? These particular signs he wrote, he says, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So John says, I want to tell you guys about these signs. And as you hear a bit about these signs, I hope that they plant the seeds that are going to lead to and produce fruit. We know that that happened with the disciples in that very first sign. It says, Jesus did this first sign in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. And his disciples did what in response? In response, they believed in him. Signs do have the potential to build faith. In fact, Jesus later will say, um, but if I do them, here he's talking about the works of the Father. He says, but if I do the works of the Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. He says, hey, even if you don't believe what I'm saying, you should be able to look at the works that I'm doing and it would be clear where I come from. So signs have the potential to, to, to produce faith in people. But there are also limits. It's almost like when John talks about signs and Jesus' use of signs, there's some ambiguity around the value of signs. Remember this conversation with Thomas, where Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. There's something valuable in those who have not witnessed the signs and the miracles or even the bodily presence of Jesus who believe. Jesus says there's a blessing for people who find themselves in that category. Or when Jesus had done his first, uh, his first sign there in, uh, in Galilee, then he's in Jerusalem and says, when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. People who come to faith solely on the basis of signs and their faith rests exclusively on signs. Jesus is saying there's some structure to it that's like a house of cards. I'm not going to entrust people whose faith is solely based on signs because signs are limited in their ability to produce faith. Here's a text that puts both of these, both the potential and the limits into one place. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and we are told in John 11:45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. So the signs produced faith in some. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests called the meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. So some believe and some do not believe in response to signs. They have a conversation about what they'll do with it. The end conclusion in John 11:53 is that from that day on, they plan to put him to death. The very same indicator, the very same sign for some is we need to believe him and for others brings the message we need to destroy him. Signs are limited in that they will not produce or guarantee faith in people. 
what we need to understand about signs is that signs will always pass through what I'm going to call here a faith filter. In other words, a person who is predisposed, who sees Jesus with faith, will see his signs and will as a result believe. People who are against Jesus, people who have a closed hearted, people who have no desire will see the signs and it will produce an exact opposite response in them. Maybe one of the ways to think about a faith filter is to think about uh, a relationship with two people. And, and let's say it's a, it's a husband and wife relationship and a wife has, is convinced her husband is a jerk. So that's her, her filter that she's going to process everything through. And there's people who come over for dinner and she's told them that her husband's a jerk and he comes home with flowers that day. Just because he comes home with flowers that day does she say, my husband's not a jerk. She'll probably say, he's got something up his sleeve. He knew you guys were coming and he wanted to impress you. Or the opposite can happen, can't it? Where somebody's convinced that this guy is a great guy, he's a wonderful guy, and he does terrible things. And the, and the friends are like, can't you see he's terrible? And you say, oh, you just don't understand. He's going through a hard season. We come up with judgments about people and we filter their actions through that. And faith is one of those filters. And signs is one of those things that go through the filter. That really it depends on what you believe about Jesus that will indicate what you do with his signs. And remember, John writes to Christians who are living after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I think John is addressing certain nostalgic Christians who say this. I mean, if I had seen the signs of Jesus, and I had witnessed that 100%, 100%, I would be a follower of Jesus. But I just don't have that opportunity. I, I won't ever be able to see those things in the flesh. And John is saying, let me tell you what. There were tons of people who saw the signs of Jesus, and they didn't have faith. There were a bunch of people who witnessed all the miracles and they wanted to kill him as a result of it. So don't deny the reality that your faith is more significant than your ability to witness signs. And don't wish you could go back because John will tell us it is that there's a blessing, a unique blessing to those who believe who have not yet seen. Have you ever heard people say, well, if, you know, if, if God wanted me to believe in him, if he did this... Then I'd believe in him. And I think John would say, would you really? Because signs are limited in their ability to produce faith in us. But not only are signs limited, and also they have potential, but there are certain dangers to signs. The first danger you can see in this text, it says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because Jesus is a miracle worker, people can seek him out for miracles. They're not seeking Jesus, they're seeking the miracles from Jesus. They're not desiring to be in an authentic relationship with Jesus. They want to get on his good side so they can get some benefits that come from a life of following Jesus. And we can flip around and have these different motivations about why we follow Jesus. We can long for the results that the signs produce without longing for the one who produces the signs. We can worship the signs themselves instead of worshiping the one who gives us the signs. We can seek the gifts of the Savior rather than seeking the Savior himself. And John is saying it is a dangerous thing to seek only the signs of Jesus, but not seeking Jesus himself. And so it may seem like we're going to leave this topic, but I think that we will find that these 
this conversation continues in John chapter 4, 46 through 48. Then he came to Cana in Galilee, which is a reminder, where did Jesus do his first sign? Do you remember? It was in Cana in Galilee. So we're back in the same place in Cana Galilee where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. In Jesus' response, this you is plural. So what Jesus is saying and helping us recognize, Jesus is not just talking to this man. He's talking to the people of Galilee and say, here's the truth for y'all. Unless y'all see these signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, there's some people in Galilee who are saying, all right, Jesus, if you do this, then I'll believe in you. And there's a hesitancy to buy in that because there's a recognition that probably even if Jesus did that, the people who are skeptical wouldn't believe in him otherwise. And so Jesus is inviting this particular man, and he's inviting the people in Galilee, and I think he's inviting us to say, how do you view Jesus? Do you view Jesus as such that you're going to say, here, if you take this test, pass this test, then I will believe in you? Or are you going to have the kind of a faith that doesn't require his signs to sustain you? Well, here's where it comes down with the uh, a recognition of, here's part of the process. Some people demand a sign. And then a sign is going to be given. And here's one of three responses that will happen after that. Some people, it will lead to faith. For some people, it will lead to more signs. Like, oh, okay, sorry, I blinked. Uh, try it again. Or, hey, well, what about this? And for others, it's going to lead to the fact that they're rejecting him. There are some people, because of his very signs, that's why they seek to crucify him. Well, here's what the official does with it. He said to him, sir, uh, come down before my little boy dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. I don't 100% know what to do with this man. There are some positive things I think John is communicating. And there's also some concerning things. In terms of the positive, there is the recognition and the exploration of this man's faith. We're told initially, he took Jesus by his word alone, which in fact is the same statement about the Samaritans. They heard the word of Jesus and they believed. That's the the most authentic kind of faith is faith that comes by hearing. And he initially had that. And then later he had this confirmation by the sign and then so he believed. And we're to realize that sometimes we need an adjective in front of our faith. Sometimes it's not just that we believe, it's what kind of belief do we have? Sometimes we have a strong belief, and sometimes we have a weak belief. Uh, sometimes we, we, we have a, a, a belief um, that is rock solid, and other times we have a belief that's a little bit more fragile. So he believes... But then later, after the signs have confirmed it, we see that it brings him to a place of deeper faith. 
But he is an example for the Galileans of one who does not say, Jesus, give me a sign first, and then I'm going to respond. And yet there's also this recognition that there is a, there is a, a distinct feeling of a difference between the conversation in Samaria and this conversation about what is the gravitational center of this passage. We have just left conversations in Samaria where Jesus was without a doubt the gravitational center of those conversations. This is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And he said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Two verses later. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They're wrestling with who is Jesus? What's his identity? In fact, then we have this summary of the whole time he's in Samaria. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves and we know that this, uh, that this truly is the Savior of the world. When we come to this man and, and, and his request of Jesus, it's almost like there's very little exploration of who Jesus is, but a lot of exploration of what Jesus can do. Jesus does the miracles in order to affirm the fact that he is the Son of God. But there are some people sometimes, I, I don't really care who you are, I, I, just, I just care what you can do. Sometimes you get to a place where you're so desperate where you say this, I will try anything. Somebody says, here's this uh, non-traditional um, medical thing that you can explore. And you say, look, I've tried everything. I'm going to try that. It doesn't mean you believe in the process. It just means I'm willing to try it. And there's almost this sense with this father that there's very little exploration of who he believes Jesus to be, what he believes Jesus can do, but he is so desperate to get something from Jesus that he goes to him and he says, will you heal my son? And of course, in the healing, Jesus is revealing a part of his identity, but the question is, does the man come to know Jesus any more deeply? What is the gravitational center of the relationship? And I think that each of us should then ask the question, what is it that really draws me into relationship with Jesus? Is it possible to have an inauthentic and artificial relationship with Jesus? I mean, I go through life, I do everything I need to do, and oh no, someone's sick. Okay, yeah, let's go back to Jesus. Let, let's pursue Jesus. Let's pray to Jesus. Let's seek Jesus. And guess what? Life's going good again. Everything's fine. Uh, we put him on the side shelf, and then, uh-oh, I lost my job. Nope, we better go running back to Jesus. And the only time that we ever approach Jesus is because now I need something else from you. Just think about what it would be like to be in a relationship like that, where every time you see someone, they say, hey, I need something else from you. You don't hear from him six months, and guess what? Oh, I need something else from you. Can we be in danger of having that kind of relationship with Jesus that we only approach him anytime we need something? Uh, a guy named John Berg, he tells the story about uh, a family in a church where he was preaching. Uh, there was a very serious uh, medical diagnosis, and this, this family, was it, it was the... It was the, the, the mother and the father, they attended church on a, on a very, very sparse basis. And when this medical diagnosis came, the family all of a sudden, they were there every Sunday. And they were praying, they said, God, if you bring healing to our family member, we will serve you forever. And he said, you know what God did? God answered that prayer. 
and the person experienced full and complete healing. And he said, I could count every Sunday one less family member that dropped, that dropped, that dropped until everything went back to the way it was before. An inauthentic relationship says, God, I'm only going to come to you when I need something from you. But an authentic relationship with God is one where we turn to God because we love him and we want to be with him. We allow God to set the agenda and we know that God will show up in the times and in the places that he wishes. I, th I think about this in the context of something that a guy named Jonathan Edwards said. He lived back in the 1700s and he said, you know, reflecting back as he was an older man, his Christian life, he says, really, I can see my Christian life had, had, had developed and matured in two phases. And, and my takeaway is that I, th I think we have to go through both of these phases, but when we're in phase one, something might be amiss. And he said, the, in his experience, phase one was a self-centered relationship with God. When you're in phase one, you ask this question, how will it benefit me to follow God? And, and if you find out there's enough benefits to following God, you say, okay, I'm on board. And you've been convinced because you're going to get certain benefits from God. And Edwards says of this, he says that they, people make themselves their last end and their own happiness their chief good to which they subordinate God. In other words, here's where I want to go in life. And God, I want you to come alongside and help, help me get everything I want to get in life. And Edward said, you know, later in life I realized there's a part of my relationship with God that that's what it was. That I wanted God to get on board with my wishes, my plans, my dreams, my agenda to help me get the things that I wanted to do. And then he entered into his second phase where he says, a God-centered relationship with God. The question that a person asks in this stage is, what most pleases God? And you might even in this stage find out, if I were to do that, God would be glorified, but I might be hurt. I might struggle. I might suffer. But I'm going to choose to do that thing because what brings me the greatest joy is the glory of God. I think this is best summarized by this very condensed statement by Edward Klink, who says, let us worship God for the wonders he can perform. Not for the wonders he can perform, but for the wonder he is. I'm going to read that again. Let us worship God, not for the wonders he can perform, but for the wonder he is. My prayer is that this week as you go into relationships and friendships, and you struggle with whatever things you're going to struggle with, you, you rejoice in whatever things you're going to rejoice in, that you will celebrate God for God being God. Not for what he's going to do to you, Though he will surprise you with graciousness. Not, not demanding he do certain things. Though he will surprise you by doing things. But simply to realize he is worthy because he is God alone. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And when we go from here, we know with the, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the love of God and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way this morning, uh, some of our shepherds will be in the back. I'll be back there. Be happy to pray with you, talk about where you are in your relationship with God. Just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.